Please take your Bibles or devices and go to 1 Peter or 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, you can pull out that black Bible and the chair in front of you and go towards the back and find page 180, 180. 1 Peter, or 1 Peter, chapter 1. I'm going to do two verses. I didn't know what to do with myself. Only two verses. I'm used to like 15. It's like, wow, how do guys preach on two verses? I'm just kidding. Just kidding, just kidding. Needed, though, because it, this, these two verses set the stage for the next... 20 weeks. We'll be in 1 Peter for 20 weeks. 20 messages I've mapped out in 1 Peter, which will take us to like the beginning of January, I believe. So this sets the stage. It sets the theme. Peter's point. What's he going to talk about? What's he going to write about? What is authoritative, not just for his readers at that time, but for us today? Well, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. John Cougar, John Deere, John 3.16 song by country music singer Keith Urban and that was the title given by Jared Wilson as a way to jumpstart his blog post from this past week July 25th in this blog post Jared Wilson asked this question where does quote fear filled political mania among conservative Christians in the political arena where does it come from? Fear-mongering. The fact that our country is in such bad shape, is it? He says, where does this come from? Wilson says, it's the idols of, quote, a zeal for power and a conflating of God's kingdom with our nation. In other words, he says, it's our theology. Track with me as I read a large portion from his blog posts. Wilson says this, The dominant moralism of the fundamentalist revivalistic evangelicalism of the 1960s and 70s gave way to the dominant moralism of the attractional contemporary evangelicalism of the 1980s and 90s. And we, 
the American church discipled our people right into this mess. When we traded in biblical exposition for self-focus how-tos. When we blended up a syrupy syncretism of Americana and Judeo-Christian values. When we stopped prophetically proclaiming and started handing out trite inspirational slogans. When we started treating congregants like customers and church programs like consumer products. When we moved the gospel to the end of the service and then escorted it out of the sanctuary altogether. We basically asked for this. We set these wheels in motions, but not before we loosened up the lug nuts. He continues, The evangelical voting bloc's willingness to sell its soul for political power is a direct result of American evangelical Christ, excuse me, evangelical churches having discipled generations of Christians into pragmatism, superficial religiosity, and therapeutic deism. It's our own fault that our people compartmentalize their lives to keep their religious self cordoned off from the rest of their selves when it's spiritually convenient to do so and then swoosh everything into one crazy schizophrenic stew when it's politically expedient. It's our fault. Our people are quickly taken in by trite sound bites. Tourette's level political sloganeering and fact allergic boogeyman chasing. It's our fault so many evangelicals are too busy cordoning off Jesus and his teaching from their political selves when they're not making Jesus their own personal Uncle Sam. It's our fault, he says, Keith Urban's John Cougar, John Deere, John 3.16 is not just a catchy pop country song, but a trenchant insight into the personality of American Christianity. This is our holy trinity now. Pop culture, Americana, and religion, or at least the parts of it that we like. So what did we do, says Wilson? The problem began at the pulpit, and that's where the solution must begin as well. Evangelicalism has a discipleship problem, so we need some discipleship solutions. may this pulpit stand strong in the truth of the gospel and not cater to the times of our culture and this book first peter it, it will gently it will lovingly it will graciously point us in the right direction so that we will be a people that's vastly different from our world. So what's Peter's point? I'll give it to you first, and then we'll unpack the verses that show us this. Peter's point. By God's grace, be wise, winsome weirdos 
in a wicked world. Be a wise, winsome weirdo in a wicked world. Thank you, John Piper, in his article, Winsome Weirdos. I stole that from him. So it's not plagiarism if you admit it, right? Uh, Winsome Weirdo is a serious call to Christian exiles. That helps me, helped me formulate the book title. I just expanded it out. Because it has to be by God's grace. The way we live is in wisdom. We're winsome in how we live. And they think we're odd. Because they live in normal everyday life. And for them, normal everyday life, what is normal anyways? Normal everyday life is normal wicked life. That's normal. And they think you're odd that you don't do that with them. Be, by God's grace, wise, winsome weirdos. Here's other ways to say it. God graciously empowers us to live drastically different lives from this world. He empowers us by His grace to live righteously in an unrighteous world. So stand firm in this grace. That's His grace. Some verses that kind of jump out from this. Uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Peter says, This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He also says in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, for the time already past is sufficient for you to carry out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. And they malign you. They get on your case. They persecute you. They make you suffer. But it's God's grace that motivates us. His grace saving us and His grace given to us each and every day motivating us to live for His glory in the midst of an evil, wicked world. And, and let me unpack some of these words. First, the word wisdom to be wise means you put knowledge into practice. It's not just merely a head knowledge. It's not just merely having a good theology, so to speak. It's theology coming out in the way you live. That's wisdom. You can take the knowledge and put it into practice. It translates itself into living out the truth of God's Word. Thus the Word Wisdom. Wise. So, it's His grace that gives us an attitude of obedient submission so that we bear up under suffering, whether it be cruelty or cancer. And I use those two words on purpose. Cruelty meaning a, a, a topic word for type of persecution. Cancer, meaning in reference to sickness and ill health and those types of things that we have to face. 
Peter is going to primarily deal with persecution, but it also translates and applies to suffering that we face in this life, sickness and death and hurts and sorrows and weakness. Only His grace in His gracious gospel gives us the ability to live commendable lives of goodness in this wicked world. That's what God does. You can only do it by His grace. You can only live that way by His grace. He saves you by His grace and He transforms you by His grace. It's His desire that His grace would so work in us that we live honorable lives among unbelievers. Wholly different. We're unusual. We are not the norm. You're abnormal. Yet, yet, God's empowering grace has been lost among Christians. Why? Because we Christians say things like this. I can't do this. Or, I can't handle this. Or, I can't be different from these people. Or, worse, I gotta fit in with these people. Again, we're talking about our proxy, our way of living. And these phrases that, 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 that come out of our mouths, we, we speak these, oh, I can't handle that. That's in direct contradiction to what God gives us in His grace. That's what you'll see from Peter. His grace reminds us that these phrases... I can't do this. I can't handle this. I can't be different. I gotta fit in. These phrases should have no part of our vocabulary. Aren't we Christians? Doesn't that mean that we are followers of Christ? Doesn't it mean that Jesus lived and died for sinners? Doesn't it mean that to live is Christ and to die is gain but our culture and may I be specific our American culture thinks that that phrase is stupid and you're stupid for believing that you're an idiot right and I use those words stupid and idiot on purpose because A, that's what they think and B, I can't use the other words that they use to describe what you believe, can I? Because you've heard stronger language than that, haven't you? And that would not be appropriate for me to say, but you've heard it. You've heard them say that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. They think you're ridiculous. To live is Christ and die is gain and God gives you grace to live like that? Are you crazy?
crazy. You belong in that nice white jacket that hugs yourself. As one pastor said to me a couple weeks ago, quote, we can live under the most intense and painful pressure because of the empowering work of God's grace. We can. Think about it. Our past has been forgiven. Our present right now is protected and enabled. Our future is assured. What what can people do to us? What, What can people do to me? But we just don't think that way, do we? That's by way of introduction. Let's drop into the verses, shall we? Let's jump in. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'll take each phrase and unpack it for us. Peter is an apostle called by the Lord Jesus Christ. He had the authoritative word to speak for the Lord Jesus himself. This letter had the authority of, at the very least, the Old Testament prophets. Thus saith the Lord. This comes to us as God's authoritative, inerrant, infallible word. And he's writing to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Let's take that part, okay? Notice how he describes them. They reside as strangers, aliens, foreigners. These Christians were separated from their communities. Why? Because their lifestyles were drastically different. They're strangers. In other words, we have no abiding home on earth. We're foreigners. We're aliens. This is not our home. And he says, they're scattered. The word, Greek word is diaspora, which means dispersion. And if you know anything about the Jews, the Jews were called a dispersion because Jews were scattered throughout the Roman Empire and it was known as the dispersion. They were dispersed throughout the world hoping one day to return to their homeland. And he quotes and lists off these four Roman provinces covering northern Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, the upper area of modern-day Turkey. So this was a circular letter sent to these specific churches, churches in the northern area of this Roman province, province, different Roman provinces there in Asia Minor. And the churches probably had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But I want to zero in when he calls them aliens. As the old song goes, we are strangers, we are aliens, 
We are not of this world. If you can tell me who sang that song, name that song, I'll give you five bucks. You cannot look it up. No, no, no. You little internet cheater. Golly, you can tell my age. As the Jews of... Here's, here's the connection now. As the Jews of the dispersion were scattered people cut off from their country and yet they're hoping to return. So what Peter does, he uses this term, the Jewish Christians would know it, the Gentile Christians would know it because it was spoken about the Jews. So as the Jews of the dispersion, they were scattered throughout the empire, wanting, hoping to return, we also as Christians should regard ourselves as, one writer puts it like this, transitory sojourners desiring to go home. Miss home. It's like when you go on vacation. Great vacation. But don't you just miss your bed? It's just something about my bed. I like my bed. That's why you have to take your pillows with you, right? When you go on vacation, you got to take your pillow that's who we are as Christians. We're transitory sojourners. We are committed to a whole different lifestyle, different lifestyle from others. And they'll think us to be odd. We simply don't belong. And we might receive an unsympathetic reaction from this world, that's a nice way of putting persecution. But our existence, as God's people, gets its direction from the future, not from the here and now. We receive our direction from God Himself, not from this world. As the, you know, the little catchphrase on the cars, the bumper sticker, N-O-T-W. Not of this world. We're not. Let me pull out some more of Jared Wilson for you from his blog post. Listen. Quote, Churches must be willing to take whatever hits necessary to maintain a stubborn Christocentrism or being Christ-centered. We may face empty seats and the loss of cultural credibility and the admiration of our peers, but when push comes to shove, we must claim only to know Christ and Him crucified. He continues, Churches must recommit to the counter-cultural manifestation of the kingdom. The kingdom is not of this world and it cannot be contained. No more isolating our holiness to Sunday morning cultural rituals, and then he puts in parentheses, as heralded in so many other country songs, where the hell-raising of Saturday night precedes the going to church come Sunday morning. Right? We cannot serve two masters, he says. We aren't to think the way the world thinks or act the way the world acts. We're different. 
And we should be. Look at the next part of the text, the end of verse 1 in my translation into verse 2, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. We're different. How are we different? We're, we're, we're aliens. We're scattered. And we're chosen. Chosen means a specific specific persons picked by God from a group of others who were not chosen. Chosen to be included among God's people to receive His blessings and His benefits, says one writer. I, I was trying to think of an illustration about chosen, and maybe this is a good illustration for you, maybe it's not. Nonetheless, here it goes. Did you hear about the 14-year-old Wisconsin girl? Was it last week or a couple weeks ago? Uh, with spinal, spinal, excuse me, muscular atrophy type 2. Her mom gave her her last wish. She wanted to go to prom. Her, uh, this disease takes over your body to the point where, I mean, you basically will die. And so she was going to go on a hospice and this whole thing and she asked, her last wish was for her daughter to have a prom. So people really, literally, came from all over. From California, people drove to Wisconsin to see this girl. To just just say, oh, we're so this and that. Um, uh, there was a particular, they didn't name the band, but a, a certain boy band, they did a video message just to her. One in 6,000 people have this disease. Spinal muscular atrophy type 2. Now what's my point in this? What made her so special to receive all this treatment from all the other people who have the same disease? that she gets this attention via from the media. What makes her so special? Oh, you might say, well, she did this and she did that. Okay, sure, fine. But what, none of the other people did that who have this disease? See, what's the point? The point I'm trying to show you is that she got this attention. She didn't deserve it. She didn't do anything to get this. That's a small illustration of what election is like. God simply decides to show love. The Greek word chosen has the, quote, sense of choice and love rather than just knowledge. God decided to love a specific large group of sinners. It was a decision to have a relationship with a group of people whom he would call his own. It's God's loving concern for a particular people. And it wasn't arbitrary, by the way. It was the exact amount of people that would give him the most glory. But notice, it says in verse 2, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Some may say, see, notice, we're chosen based upon the Father's foreseeing our faith. Some may say, see, chosen here shows it's based upon foreseeing faith. He chooses us. Whoa, wait a minute, not so fast. Foreknowledge denotes God's decision. 
this phrase modifies their elect status, so thus the basis of election is grounded in his foreknowledge. But this foreknowledge means more than just knowing what will happen in the future. It's an effective, loving choice. To be a part of God's redeemed community is based upon God's active, gracious decision to know certain individuals. He took the initiative, choosing us before we did anything. It was a personal, loving, fatherly knowledge of us, not facts. He decided to know us. So notice how he's describing more and more how different we are. We're aliens. We're scattered. We're chosen. God decided to love us. Decided to know us. And then notice the next phrase. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit consecrates or sets us apart. The means by which election is actualized or, or produces an effect is the Spirit's work of sanctification. In other words, Christians are cleansed from sin and consecrated to serve God. And in that initial cleansing, you will see that it will produce obedience. We'll see that in just a moment. So this denotes a past cleansing from sin. But it also marks a change in their lives to display practical obedience. He doesn't just forgive our sins. Each Christian is a whole brand new person. Changed. 180 degree turn. Completely different. This is why Christians are called to be different. To be wise, winsome weirdos. We should be wise. We're living out scripture. We should be winsome. Our lives are pleasant, uh, sweet, attractive to people. And yet we're weirdos. They think you're odd. Strange. In this wicked world, their lives and our lives should be totally different. Night and day. So notice... We were elected based upon God's choice, not ours. The effect was the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And then that leads us to the next phrase, the purpose. Notice he says, that you may obey Jesus Christ. Or unto obedience. The purpose was obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience, the goal, the purpose, the result is that God's people obey Him. That's the response of the believer. It's a life of faith or commitment to the Lord Jesus. 
We turn from living life our own way, submitting to the call of the gospel and embracing Christ's lordship. That's what happens to us. That's why we're different. So the two key words that, that's, that's used throughout all the New Testament, even throughout the scriptures itself, repent and believe. Repent, you turn from your past way of life. Faith, you commit to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and it results in a life of obedience to Him. So as the Father elects us, the Spirit does the sanctifying change in us, it affects infects, affects, effects us. There's obedience. And, by the way, we obey God in the Lord Jesus Christ not because we have to, though, though that's true, we should, but because we want to. And we're now able to we weren't able to do this before. We didn't want to do this before. We're different. We're weirdos now. It's because the Spirit has sanctified us and is dwelling in us that we can live a vastly different life from the world. That's where God's grace comes in. We as a church should live differently, responding differently than how the world responds to things. Oh God, change me. We should be radically different when we're at the store. Radically different when we're at the gym. Radically different when we're dealing with our neighbors. Should I say this? Friends, we should be radically different when we're voting in this election. Radically different with our words, our reactions. When we're driving, oh, oh that, ah, that just hits me in the side. When we're behind the counter. Friends, we cannot make this merely a Sunday thing. As most, well, I shouldn't say most, as many country singers put it, right? It should be more like how, well, Toby Mack puts it. Three, six, five every minute of the day. We're aliens, scattered, chosen, sanctified. There's obedience. And then he says, and be sprinkled with his blood. And be sprinkled with his blood. Drawn, oh by the way, um, and this is for free. Uh, in First Peter, there are more reflections back upon the Old Testament than any other book in the New Testament. It's, it's, it's a really short book, First Peter. So there's more allusions to the Old Testament and other books, but in terms of how short it is and how many allusions and reflections back to the Old Testament has the most than any New Testament book. And here's, here's the first one. 
like within the first two verses. He takes us back to the covenant ratification done with Moses. That's why we read together Exodus 24, verses 1 through 8. Where the people, notice, twice, did you see that as you were reading it? Twice the people pledged whatever what the Lord says we will obey, right? Twice we read that. The people, when they pledged themselves to obey the Lord, they were sprinkled with the sacrificial blood. Yeah. That's creepy. You just got splattered with blood on your forehead. And if you're shaving your head, uh, oh, I got blood all over it. Oh, sweet, let me take that off for you. Jesus, so now what he's doing now, he's making the connection that it's Jesus' sacrificial blood now, ratified in this new covenant. We're dedicated to Jesus Christ. We're sharing together our dedication to Jesus Christ. This promise of obedience was sealed by Moses sprinkling the blood on the altar and on the people. The same thing happens here with us, the New Testament assembly. But now Jews and Gentiles were one, but now this sealing is effective because it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're changed. We're different. We're radically different. We are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus as a way to consecrate us to be vastly and supremely different from this world. And everything that happened with, with the Old Testament, it was a real covenant that God made, but it was pointing to the need that we needed in Christ and the Spirit. It was begging the need for a new covenant because the Old Covenant just would not do it. We belong to Him. He belongs to us. We should be changed. Jesus' blood brings forgiveness and cleansing and is the way God consecrates His people for service to Him as His own. Christians are dedicated to God because we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Notice. Notice what he's doing here. Notice how he's showing we're aliens, scattered, chosen, sanctified. There's obedience, sprinkling. Notice how even God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son affected this work in us as his people, the triune God. These two verses set the stage for what Peter will call his readers to be wise, winsome weirdos. And notice what he says here at the end of verse 2. He sets this up and then he says, May grace and peace be, peace be yours in fullest measure. Grace and peace be multiplied. Grace, what is grace? God's loving, undeserved favor towards sinners, supremely displayed in His Son. Peace has to do with being right with God through reconciliation along with blessings that flow to us as His people. We get God's favor, we get God's friendship. 
we God's favor and it continues and we get God's friendship and the peace that comes upon us. So may God's grace, which has saved you, be multiplied. That is, on a continual daily basis we live in God's grace. It's the only way. May God's peace which reconciles us with God, may it also be multiplied. That is, His blessings, His benefits flow to us because it's not easy to be a wise, winsome weirdo. It's not easy to live a life of obedience, is it? It's hard, especially when you suffer for it. You're doing all the right things. And God, you're having me suffer. Whether you're talking about cruelty or cancer, persecution or illness. What gives, God? I have this sickness. I have arthritis. I lose my job. I'm harshly treated. Father, what are you thinking? I'm facing this conflict with this person, with this situation, in the family, whatever. Father, what are you thinking? No, Christian, on the contrary, what are you thinking? What do we expect? A six-course meal every time you wake up in the morning with a plethora of desserts to choose from? Is that what we expect? That's what I expect. Did we expect the Christian life to be easy? Didn't Jesus say, whoever comes wants to come after me, he must take up his chocolate cake and, and follow me? Oh wait, that's not there, is it? That's in the dessert translation. He must take up his cross I, I saw this this past week one person said quote until you follow God expecting no personal benefit you're not really following God oh it's like right in the gut right is it all about me or is it about living the living God and living in his grace you know, it's hard to believe, but it's well, well worth it. We will see that in the coming weeks. Great, unending, satisfying joy. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ today? I mentioned this earlier. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you want to know how you can be changed, how you can have forgiveness, how you can have freedom? Come to Jesus Christ. He will free you. He will save you. God's arms are wide open to sinners who repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And you'll become a wise, winsome weirdo. May we not conform to our American culture, the John Cougar, John Deere, John 3.16 culture. But may we have a life that stands out from our culture wise, winsome weirdos. Father, help us. 
to do this by your grace. We cannot do this at all. Help us to live in wisdom. Help our lives to be attractive. And yet realizing that we will be considered odd and strange. Because we do not run with them. No, we are aliens, scattered, yet you chose to love us. You consecrated us. You changed us so we can obey you and we're set apart for you. As this church, for us as a church, we pray, may grace and peace be ours in fullest measure. If you would take some time to ponder what we've seen in the scriptures, take a few moments. We'll have a few moments of silence for you to do that. And then we'll do our time of giving, singing our last two songs and our closing prayer. But take a few moments, if you would, and ponder what we've seen in God's Word.